Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being in greater touch with our own humanity. So this is episode 67, and we're going to start to talk about France and foreign policy. So I've been wanting to do some episodes on France for a while. If you're a long-time listener, you will remember that I did several episodes on Spain around this time last year. And so now I wanted to take a look at the relationships with France. And before I get started, just a couple of reminders. First, please check out the Agora Podcast Network, of which this podcast is a proud member. You can see all the Agora Podcasts at agorapodcastnetwork.com. I highly recommend 10 American Presidents by Royfield Brown. It's one that I've been listening to a lot recently, and I recommend that you give that one a shot. But go ahead and check out all the great Agora podcasts. And also remember that you can get show notes for each episode along with the book recommendations at englandcast.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter list and get extra mini casts and special book giveaways and other stuff like that. So englandcast.com to sign up for that. So as I said, for right now, I want to talk about foreign policy, specifically around France. And I want to trace the relationships of all of the different Tudor monarchs with France, starting with Henry Tudor, Henry VII, and ending with Elizabeth. This episode is going to be a little bit shorter than the other ones and the next week, because I'm focusing just on Henry VII. And I'm looking at overall foreign policy. And then next week, we're going to look at Henry VIII. And then the episode after that, we're going to look at Edward and Mary in one episode. And then Elizabeth is going to get her own. So we're going to do four episodes on Tudor monarchs and France. And then we will cap it off with a final episode on the field of cloth of gold. So it's going to be really good, I promise. And that will see us all the way right through into March, mid-March, maybe even April. So to get started, let's talk about where England was on the European chessboard in 1485 when the Tudors came to power after Bosworth Field. England was this small backwater island. It was really poor from having gone through decades of civil war. 
and the Tudors were a brand new dynasty. And Henry Tudor, as we've talked about before, had a really sort of tenuous claim to the throne. So his mother's line was through a bastard line dating to a relationship that John of Gaunt had with his mistress, Catherine Swinford. This goes down back like 150 years. And then his father's line was formed when Henry V's queen, Catherine of Valois, married her squire, Owen Tudor, two generations before. So this was not, this Tudor line was not a line that was old or magnificent or regal or really anything like that. It was minor nobility coming, you know, through through the lines. But the thing about the Wars of the Roses is that all of the nobility was busy killing each other. So in some respects, Henry Tudor was sort of the last man standing. Now there's more to it than that. But that's a sort of generalization. So Henry comes to power in 1485. And his primary aim in the early part of his reign was consolidating his power. Now he did win power through the battlefield. He took power by combat. And he had to fight off many pretenders who had to throw who tried to throw a wrench in his reign. And if you know the Wars of the Roses history, you will remember that the Yorkist king Edward IV had two sons. They became the princes in the tower, and those two sons were murdered or not. It's a history mystery. And while I have my own thoughts on it, this isn't the episode to go into that. The point is that Henry Tudor united the houses of Lancaster and York by marrying Elizabeth of York. Henry Tudor was a Lancastrian. He married Elizabeth of York. She was also Edward IV's daughter, so she would have been a sister to those princes in the tower. Is that as clear as mud yet? (laughs) So basically, you have the Yorkist king, Edward IV. He has many children. Two of them are the princes in the tower who are likely murdered. And another one is Elizabeth of York, and she is the one who marries Henry Tudor, i.e. Henry VII. Okay? So throughout Henry's reign, he saw people step forward, men step forward, saying that they were one of the princes, claiming to have escaped, or also that they were a relation of one of Edward IV's other brothers. Basically, he saw these people coming forward saying they were missing Yorkist princes who had a much better claim to the throne than Henry himself did. One of them was Perkin Warbeck, and he was supported by foreign governments, family members of Edward IV. Actually, another one, Lambert Simnel, was also supported by foreign governments. And this created several crises for Henry throughout his reign. And foreign powers sought to create havoc and instability in England by supporting these pretenders. When Henry first became king, His first thoughts, like I said, were consolidating his power. He wanted to rebuild the economy. He wanted to have England catch up to the rest of Europe in terms of culture and exploration. He funded the Cabots going to the New World. He really wanted to try to catch up to Europe with that kind of stuff. England had been at war for decades. Most of the nobility was dead. And Henry really couldn't afford to start foreign wars. He was inclined to seek peace and he wanted alliances that would build his reputation. But he did have potential problems. The first really kind of crisis for him was with France. Of course, the relationship between France of England, France and England went way back, 1066 and all that. England had fought France for 100 years, claiming the French throne. This is the Hundred Years' War. 
And it went right the way up to 1453. So just a few decades before Henry was king. And France had spent the 16th century building and consolidating power. Basically, France, the the high point for England was Agincourt in 1415. And then it all starts kind of falling apart for England. And France starts rebuilding. And so France is consolidating power. And many of the independent feudal territories that we know, places like Aquitaine, Eleanor of Aquitaine, they were now under the French throne. They were part of France officially. And by the time of Bosworth, France was actually three times larger than England, both in manpower and in finances, in money. So France also provided a great staging ground for the people who were opposed to the new Tudor regime. So, of course, we look back, and I've said this before, we look back at 1485, and it's very clear to us that was when the Wars of the Roses ended. But for Henry, it wasn't so clear. And also for his opponents, it wasn't so clear. For them, this was just another potential stage in the Wars of the Roses. And so if you were against Henry, and you wanted to try to, um, you know, get power back to the Yorkists or something like that, France was a really great place for you to go. It was, in fact, where Henry had gone when he was the one who was planning to invade and take back power. So the first foreign policy action that Henry took really was to sign a truce with France that lasted until 1489. And he wanted to have this truce so that um, France wasn't harboring his enemies and he didn't have to worry about a war with France on top of everything. There was, however, a crisis in Brittany, and that challenged his relationship with France. What, you may ask, is a crisis of Brittany? Well, let me tell you. Brittany is now part of France, but at the time, it was its own independent area. And it's the little bit that sticks out into the west, into the coast, into the Atlantic Ocean. Both France and Brittany had helped Henry when he was living in exile during the Wars of the Roses. Brittany had actually been his primary base during his period of wandering in the wilderness, while France had provided money for his fight against Richard III. Brittany was the last independent area within France. It was governed by an aging Duke Francis, and he had actually been the host to the exiled Henry. The regent of France now was Anne of Beaujeu, and she decided that the best way to resolve the issue of Brittany's independence, because it was an issue, she wanted to have Brittany be part of France, she decided the best thing to do would be to marry her brother, her eight-year-old brother, Charles XIII, to Anne of Brittany. So she was, Anne of Brittany was the 12-year-old daughter of Duke Francis, and she was the heir to Brittany. Now, this was something that obviously the Bretons would not accept because it would put them directly under the control of France. Brittany would be kind of just taken over by France as soon as Anne married Charles. And it became a little bit even more complicated when the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian said that he wanted to marry Anne of Brittany. And Henry didn't want to upset either France or Brittany. 
but he owed a debt of gratitude to Brittany. They were the ones who kept him when he was in exile. They didn't give him back to Richard or the other kings, the Yorkist kings who were interested in him. So he really felt that he had this debt to Brittany. And he ended up sending 6,000 volunteer troops to Brittany to defend the Bretons against the French. But the Bretons could not hold out against the French. And in December of 1491, they actually accepted defeat and married Charles. And this was effectively the end of Brittany being its own independent state. After this point, Henry started getting a little bit more assertive. Now, this was during the time in his reign when he was dealing with pretenders to the throne, a lot of them. He was dealing with Lambert Simnel and the early stages of Perkin Warbeck, both of whom claimed to be two different Yorkist princes who had a better claim to the throne than Henry did. And some of the foreign governments, like Burgundy, were supporting the pretenders, and Henry needed it to stop. He needed specifically for it to stop in France, because that was a a big place to get support. At this point, France was trying to expand influence in northern Italy. There was a lot of land, and this is something we see into the reign of Henry VIII. There's a lot of tension with France trying to get some of these northern Italian states. And they were starting to do that um, during this time. And he decided to distract them a little bit. He announced that he intended to assert his claim to the French throne. Now, Henry, the Tudor kings do all have a claim to the French, to the French throne. And that comes back again, back to the Hundred Years' War. And so Parliament voted two subsidies. They actually voted to pay for 26,000 men. These 26,000 men crossed the channel in October 1492, right when Columbus was sailing the ocean blue. Um, And they besieged Bologna. Now, the advisors of King Charles in France, they wanted Henry gone. They wanted to concentrate all of their stuff in northern Italy. And so they signed the Treaty of Atop. That was in November of 1492. And Henry got a promise from Charles that he would no longer give any assistance to any pretenders to the English throne. And Henry also received a total of 745,000 crowns. Now he was paid the cost of the invasion and there was also some money due that had been a treaty with Edward IV back in 1475 that Henry was able to start collecting on that. And the amount actually was about 5% of his total annual income. So it wasn't insubstantial. Moving south then to Spain, Henry had a different set of problems with them. In Spain, there were two independent kingdoms, Aragon and Castile, that united in 1479 under Ferdinand and Isabella. And it was the dominant power in the Western Mediterranean. They were currently on this quest to reconquer the Iberian Peninsula from the last vestiges of Moors in southern Andalusia, where, coincidentally, I live now. (laughs) Henry wanted to see greater English trade in the Mediterranean. He wanted to have more trade routes going on there. And Spain could have seen this as a threat to their own status. And so rather than kind of 
try to make things messy with them. He saw them as a potentially really useful ally being on the southern border of France. They could kind of sandwich France. And so they signed the Treaty of Medina del Campo. That was in 1489. And that was designed to have England and Spain be a lot closer together. It was the treaty that actually set up the marriage of Prince Arthur and Catherine of Aragon. This was a really big deal for Henry because, as I said, the Tudors were still brand new. There was this fear in Spain that Henry wasn't as secure on the throne as they would have liked him to have been. If he suffered a rebellion against him, Catherine of Aragon would be at risk as well. And so signing the treaty was a big success for Henry, as it gave legitimacy to his rule from one of Europe's most powerful nations. When Catherine finally arrived in England in 1501, she brought with her a dowry of 100,000 crowns as well, so not an insubstantial sum for um, Henry to have at all. Then in 1502, of course, Prince Arthur dies. That changes everything. And in June of 1502, Ferdinand and Isabella actually said that it was okay. They gave their blessing to marriage between Catherine of Aragon and the other prince, Prince Henry, who of course would become Henry VIII. This did require a papal dispensation because Catherine was Henry's brother's widow, too closely related to be married without a dispensation. And of course, this would come back to haunt them all in 25 years when Henry wanted to try to be rid of his wife, Queen Catherine. So at that point in 1502, everybody said, yes, it's fine. We'll get a papal dispensation. Hooray. Then in February 1503, Elizabeth of York died. She died in childbirth. And of course, Henry Tudor faced a really real problem. Two of his three sons were now dead, and he worried about Prince Henry. Prince Henry was really active. He liked to participate in jousting and in all kinds of sports that uh, were dangerous, I suppose. And he really wanted to ensure that the Tudors had a surviving male heir. This is a theme for Tudor kings. And Henry really wanted to find a new wife, And at the same time, Isabella of Castile had died in 1504. And so Henry and Ferdinand were both like on the marriage market at the same time. And that got a little bit awkward because there were only so many European princes that princesses that they could marry. So they were sort of rivals in love. And that made things a little bit tense. Henry never actually remarried. But he did try to have closer ties with Burgundy. That was a place that was important for him to have ties. Burgundy had had ties with the Yorkists, and so he wanted to have ties with Burgundy. And that then pushed Ferdinand into the arms of the French. And he married Germain de Foix. Germain de Foix. I'm sorry, my French is like so bad. (laughs) So... This de Foix chick, she was the niece of Louis XII, and Ferdinand married her in October of 1505. So now we've got Spain and France being really buddy-buddy. And this sets up this kind of triangular relationship that we see throughout the early to mid part of the 16th century, where England tries to balance out 
Spain and France or play the two off of each other. And this was, you know, the constant thing that we'll see Henry VIII was always dealing with. Is he at war with France? Is he at peace with France? Is he at war with Spain? Who's it's, who's at war with anybody? And it becomes even more pronounced once the person who is the Holy Roman Emperor also has control of Spain as well in the person of Charles V. So we will see this triangulation, I suppose, um, as we move on. But this is kind of the beginning of it for the Tudors, where we see Spain marry France, and that could be worrisome to Henry, and he realizes that he needs other allies on the continent who are willing to help him as well. So Henry was in this kind of vulnerable position. The other vulnerability that he had was Scotland. Now, Scotland also had a traditional alliance with France. They called it the Ald, Ald Alliance, like Ald Angsine. So Scotland had the Ald Alliance with France. And so this was also difficult for him because the border wasn't that, wasn't that great. Now, Scotland had also been favorable to Henry at Bosworth, so they supported him at Bosworth, but he couldn't guarantee that it was always going to be this way, of course. And in July of 1486, so close to a year after Bosworth, he signed a three-year truce with the Scots. And then in 1488, James III of Scotland was assassinated and James IV succeeded him. Now, James IV was 15 at the time, so he's a really young king and Henry thought, okay, the Scots have all kinds of stuff to deal with. They aren't going to be bothering me. It's fine. I'll let them deal with their internal stuff. Scotland supported Perkin Warbeck. Now, that was aimed directly at Henry. Perkin Warbeck married the cousin of James IV, and this was a major threat to England. The whole strategy with dealing with these pretenders was to show that they were actually nobodies. <laughs> like they claimed to be these really important people, the son of the Duke of Clarence or the son of Edward IV, but really they were nothing. They were sailor boys. They were people that were just picked up um, that might have had a resemblance to somebody. So that was his strategy with was trying to prove that they weren't who they said they were. But by having Scotland recognize Perkin Warbeck and say, actually, we think he is who he says he is, and we think it's so much, we're willing to put royalty to it and have him marry a cousin of our king, that was a really big deal. So it, it really kind of worried Henry. Now, the Perkin Warbeck rebellion kind of fell apart, but Henry was still worried about this and he wanted a truce. So in 1497, he signed the Truce of Aiton, and that was signed after Warbeck had fallen apart and was executed, and it became a full peace treaty. Now, this was the first peace treaty between England and Scotland since 1328, so it was a really big deal for Henry. Then, to kind of cement that, in August of 1503, Henry's eldest daughter, Margaret, married James IV, and that brought both countries even closer together as well. In January 1487, Henry also renewed a treaty with the heir to the Holy Roman Empire, and that was Maximilian. In 1496, so we're skipping ahead here, England joined the Holy League. Now that was formed to force France out of northern Italy. So again, Henry starts to join this league against France. 
But Henry only signed on the condition that England did not have to go to war with France at the same time he signed a commercial treaty with France. So he was trying to play both sides and say, okay, well, he'd participate in this Holy League, but he wanted to be friendly enough with France to trade with them. So it's a really fine line of diplomacy. Henry's foreign policy is seen as pretty successful because he started off in this position of being really nothing, just this backwater king that was had this tenuous claim at best to the throne. By the time he died, he actually had a really good reputation abroad. And it was very fortunate for Henry that for a number of years during his reign, France and the other European powers were actually more concerned about Northern Italy and, you know, the France's involvement in Northern Italy. And that was an area that England didn't really care about, and so wasn't drawn into that. So Henry was given a lot more luck and a lot more freedom than maybe his son would have been, and than he might have expected. So the book recommendation this week on Henry VII is Thomas Penn's Winter King. It's a really great narrative biography of Henry VII, and I'll put a link up on the website Remember, again, there's show notes, everything like that at englandcast.com. I will be back in two weeks with more on France, now with Henry VIII's story. And in between there, you're also going to hear a joint episode that I did with James Bolton of the Queens of England podcast. It's a fantastic show that I love. And he's just now getting into the Tudor period. So we talked about Catherine of Aragon, and that's going to be coming up next week as well. Then we will resume our regularly scheduled French programming. Thanks so much for listening. Au revoir and adios. And I will talk to you in dos semanas. Okay, bye bye. Blow, northern wind, ascend, for maybe sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote board in Bauerbrich, that soul is Samley's on sea. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.